Hi folks, and welcome to Elevate Your Game, a podcast where we take a deep dive into how to successfully bag game for the table and make it delicious. We'll explore hunting techniques, tools and equipment to increase your field success, and the utensils and culinary techniques that make wild protein delectable. My name is Tim Fowler, and I'm a Canadian journalist, chef, hunter, fisherman, and wild game cook. We'll talk with relevant experts, review gear that will help you achieve your goals, and provide game preparation details that will deliver memorable meals. Direct message me your questions on Instagram at Timothy D. Fowler, and while you're at it, give me a follow. Or you can email me your culinary questions at tim at birchcanoe.ca. Whatever your favorite wild protein, together we will elevate your game. Hi folks, and welcome to Elevate Your Game. Today we talk with Matthew Dickerson, a writer, a teacher, an outdoorsman, a fisherman. Matthew, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, your journey as a writer, what you do professionally, and welcome. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, I live in Vermont. I live just across the street from the Green Mountain National Forest. Um, I live uh, about four, about five miles north of one pretty little trout stream that flows out of the forest and um, down past me to the south and, a, and about two miles south of another little mountain river that comes down and goes by me on the other side. So I feel pretty fortunate. Um, where I live, we have wild turkeys and, and deer and bears all frequent our backyard. Um, occasional bobcats and foxes and coyotes as well. Um, I'm looking out my window at a, at a pretty laden apple tree. And one of my goals today is going to be over the next weekend is going to be harvesting some apples, um, harvesting some wild grapes. Uh, and Ooh. combining those wild grapes with, um, with my honey and I'll be fermenting some wild grape mead, um, over the next uh, couple of weeks. So, uh, that's kind of a little bit about my life, uh, professionally, um, most of the rent is paid because I teach at Middlebury college. Um, but uh, for the last 35 years, I've been an active writer. I've published a number of novels. I think writing fiction is maybe my favorite thing to write. I have some historical novels published as well as some fantasy novels published. But I'm also um, a nonfiction narrative, nonfiction writer. I love writing about the outdoors. I love writing about nature. I like writing about outdoor sports, especially fishing. I like writing about ecology. Um, writing about conservation and um, and writing personal narratives. So I have a number of books out that are either about um, rivers and nature or they're about fly fishing or they're about some combination of fly fishing and ecology as well as my works of, of fiction. Well, you take a moment now and direct people to your website or wherever they oh. can they can check out and buy your books. We'll do that at the end of the pod too. But I'd like you to have, well, I'd like listeners to have an opportunity to check out your stuff. 
Yeah. Oh, thanks. I, I, I have a couple web web pages. I don't sell my books directly. I, I try to send people to local independent bookstores um, to get my books. Um, but, you know, my books are also available at the big box stores um, as well. But anytime I can, if I can get people buying them from a supporting your local store, I try to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two websites. One is just my name, matthewdickerson.net, not .com, but .net as in the thing you scoop a trout out of the water with. Uh, MatthewDickerson.net, and um, and that's kind of my general writing. And there's links there that would get you to my to my books um, or some of my some of my articles as well. And then I have a, another website that's really devoted very specifically to fishing and to rivers, um, to trout, and it's called TroutDownstream.net. In fact, uh, you might like the title. Uh, we were talking briefly before you actually started recording this podcast about the fact that we all live downstream of other people and people live downstream of us. And that's kind of why I title my, my, my website, um, troutdownstream.net, um, has to do with that, that, that concept. Neat. And I want to point out, Matthew's got two T's. It does uh, have when two you're searching T's. Matthew, right it's, it's M-A-T-T-H-E-W. Yeah, maybe one other thing I've added is I'm I'm a member of the Outdoor Writers Association of America, and I'm also looking forward to our uh, annual conference in one month, which will be right here in Vermont. And Matthew, I am sad to tell you I had to bail. It just it was in the too hard pile with getting travel insurance for. Oh yeah. Um, from Canada when Canada has a do not travel advisory right. to the U.S. It's just, it's so sad. <laughs> so yeah. I hope to see you in Casper. I, uh, I hope I hope to come to Casper, Wyoming. And, I'm uh, definitely planning. That's already, the, the next year's conference in Casper in May is already on my calendar, and I'm definitely hoping yeah. to make it up there. Yeah. yeah. I interviewed uh, a fellow from Cody, who's the CEO of, Bighorn Armory, and mm-hmm. I'm going to go there for a tour after the conference, and uh, have a little. I haven't been to Wyoming, so anyways, n- not to get distracted. <laughs> yeah, it's kind uh, of especially sad though because this year's conference is about as close to uh, to Canada as you can get. I mean, the conference in Northern well, Vermont can be a stone's throw from the Canadian border. It's just you can't walk across it easily. Hundred percent, and that was that yeah. was our plan. Our plan was to fly to Montreal, yeah, rent a, a convertible if we could get mm, one, and, and drive through the trees yeah. to Vermont, and uh, and then take a week after the conference, and just tour around and you know do some Airbnbs and see the countryside and soak up the the culture. But anyways, that's not going to happen this year, and uh, we'll see when it can happen. So I'm impressed when a guy's got 15 books logged, I, that's, um, that's impressive. I know how hard it is to write a single piece to get it published and, um, and you publish 15 give or take books. That is impressive. So can you tell us a little bit about your writing? Just go, you, you broke out a few sort of chunks of, of topics, but just spend a little bit of time about your writing and then we'll move on to woolly buggers. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I, I think um, my my entry into writing probably came out of two things. One was a, a love of the outdoors and one was a love of reading. 
I was in, you know, I grew up as an avid reader. I, I will say I was uh, in that camp that maybe a lot of people are in where I was not especially uh, popular in middle school and high school and, um, you know, not uh, didn't really run with the popular crowds and wasn't athletic. And so my escapes were, t- were twofold. Um, I lived in a little rural area and I escaped into the woods. I'd just come home from school and head out uh, over the hill down to this little trout, little bass pond, beautiful little largemouth bass pond behind kind of over the, over the hill behind my house, no other houses around, or I just go out to the little streams in the woods and build dams and catch frogs and, um, watch, sit, sit in a stone wall and watch the deer and watch the wildlife or I'd escape into my room and I'd pick up a book and read. So, um, I discovered, uh, Tolkien's, um, the Hobbit when I was in middle school and, um, that began a long, avid uh, interest in in um, Tolkien's work and in fantasy literature in general. So I actually had the um, privilege of of going to graduate school and studying old English literature from one of Tolkien's former students. Uh, I guess that made me Tolkien's literary uh, or academic grandchild. Uh, I guess so. I got to hear firsthand accounts from my advisor of what Tolkien was like and got to study his literature from one of his, again, former um, students. And so um, that graduate work actually uh, led me to do research in medieval literature and in medieval archaeology and medieval history, um, studying what 7th century Northern European and Scandinavian life was like. And that led to the publication of my first novel in 1991. And that really kind of launched me into kind of a lifetime of, of writing. Um, I skin, I, it was a, another six years after that, before I really got into outdoor writing, there was an editor of a local paper. I happened to play basketball with him uh, a week, a couple of times a week. He knew I was a writer. He knew I had already begun teaching writing and I was a novelist. And they had a need that summer for someone to just step in and fill in for someone on vacation and do their outdoor column. Their, um, their, or their fishing column. He just asked me to start writing a fishing column for him just for three months. And um, I really enjoyed it. And that fall, the, the door opened up. I guess there was a good response to my pieces. And he said, well, how, what would you think about coming back and um, just writing for us? Not, you know, not as a full-time job, but just every other week, write one, one piece every other week for them. He said, well, if I'm going to write year round for you, I'm probably going to have to expand beyond just fishing. Uh, but if I can do it as a general outdoor column, write about hunting, I, I enjoy hunting, write about canoeing and cross country skiing and ice fishing and um, biking and really expand it to a general outdoor column, I'd be happy to. And that was um, almost 25 years ago. So that was kind of my entry into uh, now a quarter of a century of being an outdoor writer as well. I expanded from my newspaper column to beginning to write for magazines and then beginning to write books. I think um, I really like any sort of outdoor sports, although I I probably prefer ones that are um, non-motorized just because they're they're quieter and cheaper. Uh, But I love cross-country skiing and canoeing and camping and backpacking. But definitely my first love is for fly fishing and for cold water, for cold water fly fishing fishing the rivers and fishing in mountains and especially just getting back country is probably my first love. But really, again, I'm, I just love outdoor sports in general. 
Lovely. So talk to us about trout and woolly buggers. How did you get started? Hmm. Um, when, well, when, when, when you, when you describe, um, the things that you just described, yeah. my mind defaults to the bent fly rod and yeah. just how, how a fish takes a fly from the top of the water and what happens after that. And you're in a small mm. stream that's burbling and you're probably in some dappled sunshine. <laughs> yeah. My brain just sort of uh, fills know. in all this glorious detail. <laughs> so how did you get started? That's... You mentioned you started fishing when you were a kid, but how did yeah. you go from largemouth bass to woolly buggers? Well, you know, the, the image you have is, is my ideal image as well, but it's not, it's not all I do and it's not quite how I got started. Um, my father grew up in Michigan uh, and I uh, was in high school in Michigan in the 1950s. And his father used to bring them, um, you know, across the, the bridge into Ontario every year. And they did a fishing trip in Ontario. And I think it was um, probably pike fishing and perch fishing and I'm not, oh, maybe yep. walleye. Um, yep. And they would go to these remote lakes up in, up in Ontario, north of, uh, north of Michigan. And it was trolling. You know, they would have a little outboard motor, find a small boat, and they would troll the lakes and the river mouths. So when I was eight years old, um, my father took me on a uh, five-day or four-night trip up to northern Maine, to the Allagash Wilderness Waterway. And um, it was hard even to get in from the U.S. side. So we would drive up into Quebec, and we would cross, we would drive along the uh, you know, south, southern Quebec along the main border through these little um, French Canadian towns and get into this little lumber village of Dequam. And then we'd cross the border back into, into Maine and drive 30 miles down. And we would spend um, four day, four nights, five days camping in the Allagash River and was trolling for brook trout and um, brook trout for dinner. Uh, every night, sometimes for breakfast also, and just all day, rain, rain, snow, whatever the weather was. And we, uh, black flies could be pretty terrible in Northern Maine. So we would go before black fly season. We would try to get there just the week after ice out when it was still too cold for black flies, still too cold for mosquitoes. It would often be below freezing in the morning. And that was the sort of little three week window we had to fish between ice out and black flies and that became an annual trip for almost 30 years that i would take with my with my dad just a real big part of my growing up and i fell in love with fishing uh fell in love with um the taste of the taste of you know fresh brook trout uh fell in love with um with primarily with wilderness Um, that was before you know that was right around uh before the clean water act and the clean air act in the u.s really had had their impact so most of the places i had lived the rivers were horribly polluted um you know the uh andrew scoggin river in maine where i used to live was listed by time magazine in 1972 as one of the 10 filthiest rivers in the united states there was raw sewage and the refuse from paper mills floating down it so I had never seen a loon. I had never seen an osprey. The only time I'd ever seen an eagle was, uh, you know, a family vacation in, in the Rocky Mountains. I'd never seen a moose um, yeah. or a bear. Uh, never seen a bittern. Um, 
you know, or a heron. They just, they just didn't exist in, in most of New England. The, the rivers were too polluted. And so when I went to the Allagash in 1972 as an eight-year-old, it just opened my eyes to this, what a river could be like when it was protected, yeah. Um, yeah. when, you know, people weren't allowed to dump raw sewage into the river, yeah. um, when, when, you, when you, you know, there, there was plenty of lumbering. In, in northern Maine, but it didn't happen right down to the edge of the river. There was a two-mile buffer right. protecting protecting right. the river. And so all of a sudden I'm I'm going to bed listening to loons and listening to uh, you know an American bittern on the shoreline making its strange throaty sound and um, seeing ospreys die for osprey die for food. So it was really a life life-shaping experience for me uh, doing that every year with my dad. Um, but that was all trolling. And, and once I fell in love with fishing as about a 13 year old, I began to realize I can't, you know, I can't just wait and only go four days a year in a, in a motorized canoe with my dad. I'm going to need to learn how to get out and fish on my own. Um, so I, I discovered the bass pond behind my house and um, largemouth bass fishing was probably my first love. And then I discovered, started discovering the little trout streams that flowed through town. Um, and it, you know, this is at that point we were, we had left Maine. We weren't living in Maine. We were down in rural Massachusetts. So little streams flowed through town were things I could often jump across as a 14 year old, yeah. tiny little stream. Yeah. But if you ever caught even a 10 inch trout out of them, that would be a, you know, a monster that you'd want to hang in your wall as a trophy, but they were still fun. Little streams flowing through the woods in rural, rural sure. New England. Sure. That's fantastic. Um, do you remember your first fly rod? I do. Uh, when I was um, 15 years old, my father had a business trip, a week-long business trip to Colorado. So we took the whole family. And then when the business trip was done, we spent an extra week in the Rockies. But while he had this week-long business trip and myself and my two older brothers had nothing to do, my father hired a uh, fishing guide for us for one day. Wow. And, wow. and he took us uh, fly fishing on the Colorado River up in um, up near um, the little village of Granby. I think uh, the west west branch of the Colorado River. And as the, and I'd never fly fished before. Um, but the guide was showing us how to do it. And he was he's pointing, trying to point out trout rising in the river in front of us. I didn't see them. I didn't have uh, as a 14 or 15 year old, my eyes weren't trained to see them. And he'd keep looking at the river and say, look, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. And I didn't see any of them. But then he tied on two flies and he said, let me just give you a little demonstration of how to cast. And in his very first demonstration cast, he hooked two fish on one cast because he had two flies on. Um, he had, a, wow. I think, an Adams. Wow. And a, and a Hornberg and one trout took each fly. And I thought, all right, he, this guy just got on the very first cast I've ever seen fly fishing. He just caught two, two fish. So my brother, my older brother bought a fly rod. Um, I think he uh, got an actual kit for building his own fly rod and he built the fly rod. And I think within okay. two years I had bought my own fly rod. It was a um, fiberglass, big old, heavy five weight fiberglass rod. Um, I think from Ella Bean. Um, that would have been around 1978 or 79 uh, that I had that first fly rod. Um, cool. geez, no, I was 17, so I would have been 1980, I guess, um, had my first cool. fly rod. Cool. Yeah. 
And uh, you know, began learning how to use it. It, it. it took me a while before I was really comfortable enough that I, that most of my fishing was fly fishing. But yeah, it takes a little. You know, you work it. You work into it. Like you can. You, you can sort of get it once you get the. I don't know the the elemental. Even if you can throw down an ugly cast and mm-hmm. get a get an ugly cast and get that fly gently on the water. The fish are forgiving, and then you can start to learn. You know, you it's uh, you have to get over this little hump, and then once you're over that hump, it it might not be um, fly ballet yet, but uh, but you know you get started, and you're in the place where you can catch some fish. No, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I eventually are- would get. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I said, no, what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, I, there were times when I would get out to a big Western river and um, say in Yellowstone. And the only way I was going to catch this rising fish is if I could put out 65 feet of line and get a perfect, a, you know, a perfect drift with this dry fly. But that's yeah. that for me is the exception and particularly in New England rather than the rule. Most of the time I'm fishing in New England, I don't have to put out more than 25 or 30 feet. And reading the, learning how to read the water, learning how to know where the fish are and, and how they're feeding is, is more important than being able to throw out this elegant cast. So learning the elegant cast, learning to throw out 65 or 70 feet of line is helpful from, in these, from time to time. And it's fun. It's enjoyable. Um, it's a, it's a it's sort of a challenging skill to develop, but it, you don't necessarily need, as you said, you don't need to be able to do that to start catching fish in a fly run. No, no. If you learn how to read a river, go ahead. I lived in Newfoundland for a few years in the early 80s, and I got to fish Atlantic salmon, these big, Mm. big rivers in Newfoundland. Mm. And um, there was a place where, you know, you can get some line up and get some line out. That was, that was helpful. But it was also, it also these lovely little streams. Like you said, you could jump across and lovely little, I forget what they called them. They were ponds, uh, but water flowed through them. In Alberta, we'd probably call them a slough, but, uh, mm-hmm. but they had these little ponds and they were, they were full of trout. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can go in the evening and, and put out a, not a salmon rod, a trout rod, and um, and flick out uh, a dry fly, and you know you'd have half a dozen trout for the frying pan for breakfast. It was fantastic. Anyways, <laughs> I've and done do you that. Tie actually. flies? Yeah, I do tie flies, and I've actually had a week in in, in Newfoundland. I had a conference in 1992 that brought me to St. John's, awesome. and so awesome. um, we had, we just added an, an extra week to the to the conference, and I. I got to awesome. camp and fish in both uh, Terra Nova National Park and Grossmore oh, National man. Park. And I tried to go Atlantic salmon fishing because um, that was my dream. But the um, the guide and lodge we were going to go to, just they were just blunt with us. They said, the salmon haven't moved in. They said, you're going to come here mm. and you'll spend all day casting and you're not going to see a salmon. Yeah. So we ended up going yeah. out for, for trout, fishing those little streams you are just talking about. Oh, good. For trout. That's yeah. awesome. It was a wonderful and, experience. I'd love to go back. And Grossmore... Well, I, I imagine Noah's Ark when I when I go to Grossmore because you can see the high water mark. It's like a thousand meters up there, and it's like there there's yeah. the high water mark. I'm I'm pretty sure the Ark you know went by there. Anyways, um, 
what a gorgeous, I mean, Newfoundland is like Narnia. Like it's this, or now we're a little ways off topic, but whatever. <laughs> it's, this, it's this glorious green water filled place and there's moose and trout and anyways it's it's a it's a glorious place to be <laughs> i fully agree so it's neat that you it's neat that you went there i mean i grossmorn feels like narnia to me you you go through yeah. this little this little door and, and there's this you know fjords and oh anyways <laughs> oh, that's neat good so what about native I had a note, native fish. I don't even know what that means. What does native fish mean? <laughs> well, um, a lot of the books I've written um, have really addressed the, not just the joy and delight of catching native fish, but the importance of native fish. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in um, more in southern Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts where Almost all the fishing I did was for stocked fish. The native fish had long been mm, okay. driven out. Um, and that was, you know, maybe that was okay for those, for those rivers. But it put into me this, this mindset. And, and I'm going to just say, I think it was a very unhealthy mindset. My mindset was sort of, um, I would see a river or a stream. And rather than asking the question of, um, you know, what is the role of all of all the of the insects and the fish and the creatures that live in around the stream? How does that stream impact the forest and how does the forest impact the stream? And um, what are the things that are downstream of the stream? You know, how does that how does that stream impact the lakes that it flows into or the ocean that flows into? I would just begin to imagine how could I engineer that that little water to fit my desires? I'd imagine where could I put a where could I put a little dam and put a pond and and how could I stock it so it would have all the fish I, I want to fish? You know, my thought wasn't what is a healthy ecology and, and how does that impact all the life around it? It's just what's my desire? How can I make how can I conform that to my to my desire? Um, and, uh, you know, and unfortunately, I think too often a lot of us look at the world that way. We, we look at the world from sort of these very selfish eyes like what do I want and let's force everything to meet, to meet mm. my desires. And so you have, mm -hmm. you know, you have anglers who have been guilty of going all over the country and stocking brook trout in the Rocky Mountains because, oh, I, I, I grew up in the East and I like brook trout. So let's throw them in the Rocky Mountains um, or let's throw lake trout out there. And, and they've done tremendous, you know, it's been done tremendous damage. One trout is not the same as another. Um, in Wyoming and, and Montana, the whole ecosystem for at least, you know, 15,000 years has co-evolved and co-adapted around native species of, of cutthroat trout. And the feeding patterns of bear and osprey and, and even pelicans that fly up into, you know, into the middle of the Rocky Mountains to, to, uh, Yellowstone, Yellowstone Lake, um, they've adapted their routines and their lives and their, and, you know, the whole ecology around the native cutthroat, uh, the native fish, which, which, for example, in Yellowstone Lake would be um, Yellowstone cutthroat or further south, Colorado River cutthroat or further north, it would be West Slope cutthroat. And the cutthroat themselves have micro adapted to, to really local watersheds, local rivers. 
And so you get some pretty dramatic effects when someone goes and dumps um, lake trout into Yellowstone Lake, which, you know, which happened um, a few decades ago. It was devastating. The lake trout caused a, a catastrophic collapse in, um, in the cutthroat population. And, you, and, and it ripples out because, you know, we all lived, everything is downstream of everything else. Um, yep. Everything in an ecological system impacts everything else. And so what you end up having is the, the, in, the introduction of lake trout, which presumably someone wanted to catch because they get really big, caused not only a catastrophic collapse of cutthroat trout, but it caused a collapse in the osprey population. You know, according to the biological reports in Yellowstone National Park, over just a short period of time, a few years ago, the number of osprey went from 65 nesting pairs down to five. Yep. Right. You're looking at over 90 percent. They can't catch lake trout. Yeah. Lake trout are not available uh, nutrients, not available um, food to an osprey. And then and then the bald eagles. uh, So the osprey all just leave. Osprey are very specialized feeders. Mm-hmm. Lake trout are, are more, um, you know, more uh, adaptable or more um, opportunists. So the lake trout, sorry, uh, I don't mean like um, bald. I'm talking about bald eagles. Yep. Bald eagles are more opportunists, right? They're mm-hmm. they, they are more adaptable. So the bald eagles, like the osprey, would feed heavily on cutthroat trout. But when the cutthroat trout disappeared, the osprey left. The bald eagles just start switching to other food. So they start feeding on the young swans and all of a sudden the swans in, um, in Yellowstone Lake weren't, weren't reproducing the, the, the young cygnets weren't, weren't growing to maturity because the bald eagles were, were feeding on them. And then, you know, the grizzly bears in Yellowstone would, they would hunt for, um, for cutthroat trout the same way that brown bears in Alaska sit by a river and, and catch salmon. And so the bear population, right at this critical time in the spring, right, when they've would, would been dormant or, or not really hibernating, but what we call uh, hibernating, and they come out of hibernation and they're really hungry. And, and this is when the cutthroat trout are spawning. It was an important food supply for bears. Uh, yep. And and so some people even think uh, that the decline in elk in Yellowstone was impacted by lake trout because as the lake trout consumed the cutthroat trout, the bears had lost that food supply and had to start feeding more on. They turned young, their attention to the calves. To the elk, yeah, to the calves. Wow. So all of all of the things we do, all of our actions, just just ripple out, and so I've gotten a lot more concerned and interested in the last 15 or 20 years um, about the, the understanding, the importance of not just the fish I want to catch, but the importance of native fish in the ecosystem. What role do they play and, and how can my actions and my decisions really kind of have a much, bro- much bigger view of the health of ecosystems? So that's a long answer to why you had native fish written down on a piece of paper no that's a that's a great answer and it pushes a little bit on me mm. <laughs> which is good me too. it's good yeah, yeah yeah it pushes a little bit it's it's good it's sort of out of my view it's like okay well stock and trope great that means i can catch trope yeah um well just hang on a minute what does that actually mean and then you push it around and it's like man oh man oh man there's 
I think, I don't know how many layers you got there. Five. I think there was five layers Yeah. <laughs> when you go through, when you go, I think you hit five layers, maybe not, whatever, but, but it was yeah, tropic cascade. It's yeah. significant when you go from, from trout to elk through yeah. grizzly bears, uh, eagles, osprey, and I'm sure yeah. there's other stuff in there. And there's probably things in the water too. Like it's not just, it's not just above the water, it's below the water. Um, so the, yeah, I mean, there's studies from, um, both in Japan and in the U in the U S in Idaho. Um, uh, I'm familiar with them from a, from a great Colorado state university biologist, Kurt Fausch, who wrote a wonderful book for the love of rivers, which I would highly recommend. Mm, okay. Um, Studies that show even, for example, the introduction of non-native brook trout in Idaho can cause a collapse in the songbird population. Because when wow. the brook trout get put in the stream, the brook trout begin to push the cutthroat trout to towards um, feeding on more than macro invertebrates. So that mm. these little mayflies never hatch and because the mayflies never hatch and reach the surface, they're not feeding the stream side spiders that are living in the woods by the stream. And then the songbirds no longer can feed on the spiders. So you throw non-native brook trout into a little Idaho stream and all of a sudden you're impacting the songbird population. And can you tell me the author's name again? Oh, um, uh, the book for the love of rivers, Kurt yeah. Fausch, F-A-U-S-C-H. Um, yeah, wonderful book. Kurt with a T or a K? Uh, uh, Kurt with a, with a, a C, Kurt Fausch. Awesome. Okay. Um, well, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes so people can go. Sorry. Um, I, sorry. Uh, did I say C? It's Kurt with a K. Kurt Fausch, F-A-U-S-C-H. The full title is yeah. For the Love of Rivers, A Scientist's Journey. I've certainly quoted Kurt a lot in my, my own books about trout and rivers. He's one of, one of several biologists I've had a chance to, to meet and talk with. Um, I, try to, um, I try to have my own books not only be enjoyable and good narratives and story about stories about fly fishing and my own personal experiences, but I, I think my books are also well-informed by science and ecology. So. Mm. Um, when I was artist in residence at Glacier National Park a couple of years ago, I had a chance to spend a lot of time with some USGS biologists, uh, National Park Service biologists, and U.S. Forest Service biologists up and down the Rockies, just learning from them, spending a day with them, yeah. reading their papers, studying their research, and really trying to understand things from stream ecology to genetics, genetic studies. Um, to try to have, yep. uh, you know, to weave that into my own stories um, as well. Nice. Um, before we go, I, I would like you to tell listeners, because some of our listeners are, are writers, I would like you to walk us through what you recently did in Alaska mm. with, uh, with a group of, of up and coming writers. Yeah, six six years ago, I um, I taught a, a, a Middlebury College writing class in the summer. It was a four week class, and I taught it in Alaska and um, brought uh, nine nine college students. And I had a former one of my own Middlebury students from thirty years ago come up and co teach it with me. 
Um, he's now a professor at Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He teaches environmental philosophy, but he's also a really good writer. We've actually co-written three books together. Okay. So um, six years ago, he came up and he taught the class with me, and it was a Middlebury College class. And so this summer, he taught the class out of his university, Augustana University in South Dakota. And I was very fortunate that he invited me to be to help co-teach it with him. So we had 10 students of ours, 10 Augustana students up in Alaska for, for three weeks. And it was, um, again, a, a nonfiction um, class on, on nature writing and environmental writing and, um, and, and also a component of, of environmental philosophy. And most of the time was spent backcountry. We, um, we had several days where our class was, uh, you know, camped in the wilderness and that was our classroom. We'd wake up in the morning and we, we'd walk down to the river or the lake and we'd look at insects rising and we'd look at fish or we would, you know, look at the berries and the plants and, um, and, and write and explore. We took them on a bear viewing trip down to Katmai National Park and sat by a salmon river in Katmai National Park and watched, you know, wow. dozens of, you know, 600 pound brown bears wow. feeding on, on the tens of thousands of sockeye salmon swimming up through. So it's a really enjoyable class. Um, and it was also part of my own work. I'm currently, my, my current nonfiction project um, that I'm really just now getting full into is going to be about native native fish and fly fishing and, and wilderness experiences in um, the Bristol Bay watershed of Alaska. I just, just this, just last week had a book published about um, the Northern Rockies, about cutthroat trout in Wyoming and Montana. And now that that's sort of officially out there in the world, my attention has now turned to my next project, which will be about Alaska. So it was a dual purpose class. It was three weeks of teaching writing to students, but also three weeks of experiences for me, for my own writing. And when all the students left, I spent another nine days um, nice. in, in the Bristol Bay watershed, uh, fishing and writing and learning and photographing. Yeah. Sounds glorious. It was wonderful. <laughs> I stayed in a beautiful um, little um, lodge, the Farm Lodge in Port Allsworth. Um, it's it's awesome. not on the road system. You can't drive there. You got to fly in on a little plane, but it's just a wonderful lodge, wonderful hospitality. Um, awesome. Some people go there just for the, for the photography, for the wildlife, for the glaciers and the volcanoes. But of course, a lot of people also go there because... Um, you're in a great place to, to access some wonderful fishing. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, Matthew, what do you, what do you want to leave us with? Uh, what do you want to leave for the, for the listeners? You know, one of the, um, one of the lines we use a lot in our class that um, my friend pulled, pulled from another book, which I very recently read. It's, um, called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's also um, a biologist, um, a, a forestry, uh, I think, expert, um, botanist, but a wonderful writer, very beautiful writer. And um, I think one of the themes of that book is that all flourishing is mutual. All flourishing is mutual. And... Um, you know, when we, when we help other people flourish, we, we flourish as well. When we help the world to flourish, when we, when we care about the flourishing of rivers, we're helping the forests to flourish also. When we protect the forests and help the forests flourish, we're 
We're helping the rivers flourish and we're helping the ocean flourish and everything is tied together. You know, when the oceans are unhealthy, those salmon aren't going to come up those rivers and the whole ecosystem of the rivers will collapse because they're so dependent on, you know, the native fish. But the opposite is true. If you don't protect the rivers, the oceans are going to collapse. Um, all flourishing is mutual. Hmm. Do you know, when you say that, I, I think about a, a, a sum, like a, a sum is when you add two things together. Mm-hmm. And and if you add two and two, you get four. But in the in the concept that you're talking about, you add two and two, and you get six or eight or a dozen. That's right. Um, they they multiply when they come together, and it's in it's in relationships between people, and 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 what we're doing right now. I mean, this podcast is one of those kinds of things. I hope it adds value to you, and it certainly adds value to me, and it adds value to our readers. Well, that's not two plus two plus two. That's a dozen or more. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an interesting concept that I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about. So thank you. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us and chat about fishing and writing and ecology. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, again, I, you know, obviously I'm delighted if anyone wants to pick up any of my books um, as well. I think the most recent one is titled um, A Fine Spotted Trout in Corral Creek. And before that, um, The Voices of Rivers. So, love to find and some Matthew, I will put, well. I will put that information in the show notes. So Thank you. people can, can click and, and find the stuff. I'll, I'll clarify with you exactly what we want in the show notes. But that'll be up when the pod goes up and then people can check it out. Great. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. All righty. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.